This episode is brought to you by Thorn, and I have some incredible news for any of you that are in the military, first responder, or medical professions. In an effort to give back, Thorn is now offering you an ongoing 35% off each and every one of your purchases of their incredible nutritional solutions. Now, Thorn is the official supplement of CrossFit, the UFC, the Mayo Clinic, the Human Performance Project, and multiple special operations organizations. I myself have used them for several years, and that is why I brought them on as a sponsor. Some of my favorite products they have are their Multivitamin Elite, their Whey Protein, the Super EPA, and then most recently, Cinequil. As a firefighter, a stuntman, and a martial artist, I've had my share of brain trauma and sleep deprivation, and Cinequil is their latest brain health supplement. Now, to qualify for the 35% off, Go to thorn.com, T-H-O-R-N-E.com. Click on sign in and then create a new account. You will see the opportunity to register as a first responder or member of military. When you click on that, it will take you through verification with GovX. You'll simply choose a profession, provide one piece of documentation, and then you are verified for life. From that point onwards, you will continue to receive 35% off through Thorn. Now, for those of you who don't qualify, there is still the 10% off using the code BTS10, behind the shield 10, for a one-time purchase. Now, to learn more about Thorn, go to episode 323 of the Behind the Shield podcast with Joel Totoro and Wes Barnett. Welcome to the Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing, and this week it is my absolute honor to welcome on the show Marine and the founder of Kadri Clothing, Catherine Basso. So we discuss a host of topics, from her early journey into sports medicine, her military career, the female tactical athlete, body armor, hygiene in the field, sweatshops, entrepreneurship, and so much more. Now, before we get to this incredible conversation, as I say every week, please just take a moment and go to whichever app you listen to this on, subscribe to the show, leave feedback, and leave a rating. Every single five-star rating truly does elevate this podcast, therefore making it easier for others to find. And this is a free library of almost 800 episodes now. So all I ask in return is that you help share these incredible men and women's stories so I can get them to every single person on planet Earth who needs to hear them. So with that being said, I introduce to you Catherine Basso. Enjoy. Catherine, I want to start by saying thank you so much for taking the time to come on today. Um, I think it was Miguel that connected us. Is that right? I I believe so. Um, You know, I've been very honored that a lot of the people in this community have been opening up their networks to me, uh, you being, you know, one of them. So I really appreciate you having me on. So Miguel, people have heard this name. He's the mysterious man wearing a Marine uniform that I've taken about three years trying to convince to come on himself. He's sent so many other amazing people, but I've still yet to get him on. So uh, I'm going to put that out there to shame him when he listens to this. All right. Well, then the very first question, where on planet Earth are we finding you today? Today, I am in Northeast Nevada. 
we have a ranch out here that uh, serves as both a training facility and a home to a nonprofit called Torn Warriors. Uh, it is a balmy 38 degrees right now. Uh, we've had a few beautiful days of 65, and then the next day it snowed. Uh, so like everyone in this latitude, we're very, very tired of snow, and we're very ready for spring. I won't show you the view outside my window then here in central Florida. <laughs> yes, thank you. I Every single time I, I post videos or photos of the feet of snow, uh, I always get my East Coast friends letting me know it's it's 80 and sunny here. It's beautiful here. I'm like, thank you. That's <laughs> super helpful. Really appreciate that. Well, South Florida just got battered by storms. So they had flooding and all kinds of stuff down there. So, you know, we each have our uh, our weather traumas once in a while. So you talk about ranch. Um, I would love to start at the very beginning of your timeline. I know farms are involved in that. So talk to me about where you grew up. Um, tell me a little about your family dynamic, what your parents did, and how many siblings. Oh, man, we're, we're going back. Um, okay, so I grew up on a farm in Charlottesville, Virginia. Uh, there were no other kids around besides my brother, my sister, uh, and myself. And so we grew up pretty close. Um, I also grew up very close to the baby cows, which is why to this day I can't eat veal. Um, had a lot of chickens, uh, typical farm life. It was amazing. The, the peace, the security, the, the freedom. Um, I knew pretty much immediately that that was the type of life that I wanted to end up with um, after all of the craziness that I, I chose to do. Uh, grew up in a wonderful, loving home. Zero complaints. Um, you know, it's a very unique world to live in when you have to entertain yourself, uh, you know, outside. And I, I know, unfortunately, that a lot of kids these days don't have that opportunity here. Um, and I'm, I'm very blessed that the kids in where we are um, have that same opportunity. Uh, it is an amazing way to, to understand what this world has to offer um, on you know, the freedom in the farm side. Um, and yeah, so I ended up going to the University of Virginia after high school. 9-11 uh, hit uh, when I was a second year there. And I decided that all of the plans that I had for that life uh, would be put on hold while I joined the Marine Corps. So after college, I went to Quantico and went to OCS and became a second lieutenant and started my my career well, I know there. that the, uh, the military lineage goes back to, you know, your father and grandfather. So talk to me about their service. And I know your dad was, was Vietnam as well. Did you, as you progress through your adulthood, recognize some of the, the costs of war on your own family when you look back now? Definitely on my grandfather's side. Um, nothing against, you know, my, my father's service at all. Uh, he had a very low draft number. So he ended up enlisting so that he could choose what he was going to do. Uh, that allowed him to go to Germany. So he spent uh, his time, you know, during that Vietnam War area in Germany. Um, my grandfather, however, in World War II, he was one of the first platoons over after the atomic bombs. And every single person in his platoon died of cancer, including him. 
uh, he lasted, he was the last one. Um, but the cancer just riddled his body. And unfortunately, they did not get the type of respect that they were due. Um, that correlation between, hey, I'm in radiation-filled land. I'm, you know, he used to talk to me about how the soles of his boots would would melt as he was walking. Um, all of that stuff is horrible. And we can obviously correlate that to this is really bad for your health. But at the time, they didn't. Um, and that honestly brings me back to the PACT Act and what Congress is doing now for the, the GWAT veterans uh, and those currently in, because we do have a lot of our friends who either have cancer or have died from cancer. So the fact that Congress has recognized the toxins that were, we were exposed to is, is extremely important to this generation of veterans. My father-in-law ended up getting compensated, but he was exposed to Agent Orange, had you know, cancer several times now. Um, I just had Amy Lara on the show, who was, uh, she's a Marine as well. I'll make sure, I hope I'm getting that right. Um, but she was in Camp Lejeune, so yeah, she would have been a Marine, um, when the contaminated water was there for everyone to drink. And she's literally and basically in pseudo hospice now. Um, and then you hear about the burn pits, and then there's I've had guests on talking about the Ferez Doctrine. So one of my guests, um, his uh, Richard, his his case was actually denied, and so you've got you know, as you said, like we're almost a hundred years from World War Two now, you know, eighty something, and this same thing seems happening over and over and over again. And it's one thing throwing money at these poor men and women, but obviously the the goal is to a try and avoid combat as as much as possible but b actually give them the correct protection and the correct equipment so that you know they survive a tour in afghanistan or iraq but end up dying from exposure to burn pits yeah it's we're we're learning a lot and i feel like we are finally relying on the experts to provide that information like i get it in the military right like you have a mission you have to do it you're not thinking about 15 years down the road 10 years down the road you know, you're thinking about completing that mission, you know, making sure you're there for that, that man or woman beside you um, and just doing what you're, you're asked to do, right? That's what we sign up for. That's what we're, we're trained to do. Um, and so it, it really falls on the leaders. It falls on the leaders to say, hey, maybe we shouldn't have had people monitoring the burn pit. You know, maybe we shouldn't have exposed all of these people to these extremely harmful chemicals. Instead of just saying, hey, this needs to get done, we need leaders to step up and say, let's think about this first. I mean, I remember the water in Iraq when I was there, like it, it always tasted funny because it was, you know, these nasty pallets of bottled water that were left out in the sun baking, you know, and all that plastic was just seeping into it. And it's just like, okay, it tastes funny. Put a hydration packet in it so you don't have to taste it anymore. And again, we got the job done, but at what cost? And so I, I do, I, I put it back on, you know, the officers, the leaders, the decision makers to really think about what they're asking you know, these young service members to do, because they're going to do it and they're not going to think twice about it because that's what we've trained them to do. So it, it really just falls on us. Um, and it is about prevention, right? It's about ensuring that and, and that goes to everything, not just cancer, not just exposure, you know, the, the gear that we're using, um, you know, let's, 
Let's make sure that that fits correctly. Let's make sure that that's not causing injuries. Let's make sure that we're not having to medically retire people at 10 years because their back is so messed up. Their knees are so messed up and their hips are horrible and they can't even run anymore. And, you know, we, we see that just across the board on retention and ensuring that these service members are treated like weapon systems. I mean, NICO, the uniform that we use, that is the cheapest material known on the planet, right? We've been using that forever. We have, as a textiles person, I can tell you, we have evolved so much from NICO, yet we are still using it. The same can be said about all of our gear. So if we know that there's better stuff out there, we know that there's better stuff out in the commercial sector, then it's really dependent on those leaders to say, these service members that I am investing so much money in should be able to be retained because we're not injuring them because we are giving them the best material, the best equipment out there. Yeah, I agree. And I think the fire service suffers from that too. I mean, we... It would be game changing if you literally had gloves. I'm sure there's all kinds of you know materials that are used in. Wait, 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 wait. What do you mean you don't have gloves? Well, we have gloves, but it's, they're almost like pillows that you strap to your hand. When our actual gloves we wear with our bunker gear and we go into a fire are so thick that you can barely even manipulate like a knot. So if you're thinking about searching and trying to find, you know, is that a person? Is that a piece of furniture? I mean, we literally have just got this big old padded thickness on our hands and you talk to people that are in for example the space industry and they're like oh no we've got all kinds of textiles that can withstand you know crazy heats and all these kind of things but you know we're still wearing the same things and i talk about this a lot the helmet there's such an evolution in the technology for a firefighter's helmet and the heads-up display but there's this kind of i mean really it comes from vanity there's this refusal to let go of the american fire helmet which is heavy it's bulky it's you know it was literally invented in the 30s and people are hanging on to that like that's tradition you know instead of the leaders of the american fire service going that is fire service history and it's a beautiful part of our history but it's leather it absorbs all the carcinogens it's heavy it gets knocked off the moments anything hits it this new helmet that they have over here it's the same helmet, the same kind of helmet you'd wear on a motorcycle. You can tumble and ragdoll and it'll still stay on your head. It's light. It's got all these features built in. And this is the problem is that what I see in, in the fire service is that kind of ignorance is resisting some of the technology that's actually there. So whether it's you know the financial side or, or basically the egos, it is preventing us from being... Uh, you know, performing as well as we can and also making it far more dangerous for our men and women. Yeah. So when I, I brief leaders on ensuring that women have the female fit and female sized gear, uniforms, clothes, apparel. And I always start off by, by talking about these standards that women are meeting and exceeding and the standards that some women can't meet in order to get into these combat arms realms or, or these units that they're, they're trying to go after. And I talked to them about ruck runs, you know, okay, you have a woman on a ruck run and you're like, she's really slow. Okay. Why is she slow? Is she slow because she's been trained like a man? Is she slow because she's wearing boots that are fit for men? Is she slow because her shoulder harness is so wide 
and tall for her torso that she is holding it together with her arms so that she can run. And how much faster would she be if she could actually use her arms when she ran? How much faster could she be if she had boots that were actually fit for her feet? And same thing with accuracy, right? These plate carriers that we're wearing, they cover you know, our shoulders. And so that butt of that rifle is not sitting properly because it, it's competing against a, you know, a strip of nylon. So you see these women and you watch them and that butt of the rifle starts slipping down towards their bicep. No wonder they're not accurate, right? No wonder they're, they're having trouble with all this. They're, they're running around and, and gear that looks like they're, like they're wearing their daddy's stuff. And then it's, it's dress up when they were, you know, eight. And you have to wonder how much better they could be, how much faster they could be, how much more accurate they could be if they actually wore the gear that fit their bodies. And at this point in 2023, there's zero excuse for it, right? It is a basic requirement by doctrine for the services to equip their service members. And by doctrine, they should be able to do that as a basic requirement. And instead they are cutting corners. They are trying to make things easier for supply, for contract officers, or, or they're just ignorant of the fact that women have different body shapes. I, I don't know that part, but point being is, you know, they, they really need to, to step up and say, okay, if my unit is going to excel and be that weapon system, if that man is going to trust that woman next to her. And if she's going to trust him, they need to have the very best that I can offer in order for them to get that mission complete. And that includes gear that fits. That includes apparel that fits. Um, and it, it's just a, it's a very strange argument to be fighting, especially in 23, because, well, of course that makes sense, right? Like I'm not going to put somebody, you know, in Syria and they're distracted the entire time because they're fiddling with their gear. Like that is a liability to that person. That's a liability to that, that man and woman next to them. So why wouldn't we ensure that these service members who are willing to give their lives, who we've invested so much in, who we are trying to retain aren't given the very best. And I don't really have the, the answer to that. I don't know why. Well, you mentioned about your granddad serving in World War II. I want to go reverse engineer for a second as far as women in the, and I'm using air quotes, male roles. Obviously, today, there is no such thing as any role anymore. You can't you offend someone these days. But, you know, the traditionally male roles up to that point. So, obviously, the quote-unquote men went to war, and then now, all of a sudden, women are in all these positions that before were deemed you know, wrong for them. And you had Rosie the Riveter, and you had that whole movement and then we get to the 1950s and it's all women belong in the kitchen again. Through your eyes, what? how do we shift so so extremely back the opposite way from kind of Victorian times back into the 50s again when there'd been so much empowerment in, you know, the, the, the role of women, whether it was directly in, you know, like the resistance in France, for example, whether it was in the support role of all the other areas that, that facilitated us winning the war? That is a very loaded question. Um, I think a lot of it comes down to power. Uh, I think that innately humans desire power. 
And that desire leads to conflict and that desire leads to wars and that desire leads to um, a lot of bad things. Uh, I think after World War II, the guys came back and this idea of them losing jobs or losing independence ended up creating this very conservative movement that women are homemakers and housewives. Um, and again, like nothing against the women who choose that, right? But it needs to be a choice. If, and I, I had a lot of friends who were like, my, I cannot wait to be a mother. I cannot wait to stay home and raise my kids. And, you know, that was what their desire was. And I support that just as much as that little girl who says, I can't wait to join the military. I can't wait to be a firefighter, but we have to give them that choice, right? We have to have that opportunity for both. And there is room for both. Just because a woman is choosing to become a Marine doesn't mean that there's some guy somewhere that can't be a Marine. And so I think that the fault of society is that a lot of these people are seeing this as a, a zero sum game. And instead they need to focus on enlarging that, that pizza pie, right. Enlarging that, that opportunity base, because we should be, we should have the choice. And if a man wants to stay home and raise his kids, he should have that choice as well. Right. It's just that society has deemed that as not a manly thing to do. And instead of us criticizing either one, we need to create an environment where that choice is allowed for, for both sexes. So you went on a podcast, um, I think it was a few months ago now, and it was a fellow veteran. I think she was in the army and it was talking about female warriors. I want to give credit to that podcast. Do you remember the name of that one? I don't, um, but she was amazing and um it's okay and now i feel no, terrible no, i'll look it up while, we, yeah. while i ask you this question because I, 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 okay. I, if i listen to someone on a podcast i always want to credit because i'm usually adding on some of my questions are coming from the responses before in that conversation you basically spoke about how overall through your military career you hadn't really experienced sexism but then the transition out into the you know the the non-military world you saw it a lot more i you know, I'm just posing this again. This could be loaded. I guess term is loaded, but through my eyes, I wonder if it was our veterans from World War II that were the push behind that, or if it was actually the men that never served, that stayed at home, that were behind that narrative, and the men that came back had got so many other things they were just trying to take care of between their ears and their family that they weren't really aware of this kind of uh, um, sexism going on and regressing the women's role. It... <laughs> So when I was at one of my duty stations, I was giving a tour to a bunch of World War II veterans. And one, they were amazing, um, amazing to talk to, amazing conversationalists. And the first question I got from them was, you aren't wearing high heels. And I was like, yeah, yes, sir, that's, that's correct. Uh, I wear combat boots like everyone else. And he's like, are you a nurse? 
I'm like, no, sir, I'm, I'm not a nurse. He's like, are you a secretary? It's like, no, sir, I'm, I'm not a secretary. And that to me was, uh, it was not sexism at all. That was education, right? Uh, he had served with women, but at the time, women could only be nurses or they could be uh, typewriter secretaries, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and it was those women who paved the way for the next generation of women to keep fighting to open up more jobs. So we are standing on the shoulders of those women who volunteered during that time. I believe our culture is constantly adapting and growing. It's a living, breathing thing. And with that, we are learning. You know, I, I don't believe in cancel culture because there's no way that someone at the age of 18 is the same person they are at age 48 or 50. We have to grow, right? We have to. And as we are exposed to more things, that is what gives us that information education. The sexism that I did not receive during the military was because the Marines I served with were used to serving with women. The officers I served with started as second lieutenants. We are at TBS together, right? Men and women right next to each other. That exposure educated them and informed them of their beliefs and their attitudes. The, when I got out, I can't say the same thing about every person that I've dealt with. The men in a male-oriented industry who are not used to having women there are going to treat me the same way that they believe they've experienced in the past with other women. Is that right? Absolutely not. But I'm giving them the benefit of the doubt that they are ignorant because they have not been exposed to the correct examples of the capability of women. So it's, in part, it is absolutely exhausting, um, but that is why representation matters so much. That is why we need women across every industry, because it's not just the woke culture or you know, whatever people are, are complaining about these days, right? Diversity higher or all of these absolutely horrible things. It's the fact that representation provides a different perspective. Diversity provides a different perspective. If you have an entire table full of all the exact same white men from Nebraska, they're all going to have the exact same opinion. You throw little old me in there and guess what? I'm going to see things through a different lens and thus I'm going to give you a different perspective. That is what makes women in these environments so great. A lot of times men have never been exposed to women CEOs, uh, women vice presidents, uh, women officers, you know, women's uh, senior leadership, uh, senior NCOs. And once they are, then all of a sudden that attitude changes. And once the attitude changes, the behavior changes. Once the behavior changes, then all of a sudden they're like, 
oh man, I was very sexist and now I'm not. And so I, I don't understand completely. And I know that there are women's studies groups out there probably listening, going, this is exactly why we fell back, you know, in, in our equality movement in the 1950s. And, and I apologize. I should have taken that, that course in college. Um, I don't know why it occurred, but I do know that we can start pushing forward back into this, this world where, and again, it, it, what bothers me with some men's definition of feminism is that we all hate men and we want to be better than men. And that's not the case, especially today. We want to be right next to you, alongside you, working on the same problem, brainstorming, giving you a different perspective, you know, making the world a better place as equal partners. And I think we can get there. We just need to start cleaning up these little things like ensuring that women have the same opportunities and that women have, you know, female sized and female fit equipment in order for them to do their jobs. Well, I agree completely. I was talking to Meg Tucker, who I know you're friends with as well, and you both spoke at the uh, symposium, which we'll get to. And she was talking about training the female athlete and the differences. And it was it was fascinating. And I said to her, I mean, I've witnessed, you know, chauvinism in the fire service. And most most people in the fire service are amazing. And they're completely accepting because they're not dicks. But, um, you know, you get that chauvinism. But the great thing about the fire service is when we're actually at a fire and we're wearing all our gear and our mask and our you know our tank is on you only have one prejudice you can see who can and who can't it's that simple in there they might be male female black white gay straight you know whatever but they either can do the job or they can't do the job so to me it was always the great equalizer and even if you take for example what should be a, a annual fitness standard it's a hose, it's a ladder, it's a mannequin. You're not trying to get someone to deadlift 400 or carry a 200-pound ruck 20 miles. You're doing realistic firefighter tasks with the tools that we actually need to do the job. So if you can reach and hopefully excel that standard, then you're probably going to be a great firefighter. So that's what's so crazy in my profession is, I, I mean, I've seen it. I'm not, I'm not blind. I, I hear some of those comments, but they're they're unfounded. Like I said, the only prejudice in a profession where lives are at stake is can you or can you not? Yeah, I, I absolutely agree with that. And I, I think even having this debate is a privilege, you know, privilege of, of peacetime. Uh, like, look at Ukraine. You know, no one is arguing whether or not a man or woman can do it, right? They are asking their citizens to take up arms and fight against an invasion by a massive superpower, you know, no discussion uh, you know, that we've been having. It is, can you or can't you defend your country and defend your family? And so just the very fact that we're having this debate in our culture, just the very fact that we're having this debate in our society, it just shows the, the privilege of peace that we're currently living in. And that peace is on the backs of the men and women who fought for that piece. So it's almost ironic, you know, because the women were fighting as well. Um, and now it's, well, prove that we can do it. Well, they've already done it. So you know, let's just keep moving forward. Yeah. Well, I mean, especially listen to some of the most, 
iconic stories of World War II. They're female French resistance fighters and Russian female snipers and, you know, all these these incredible women. But all of a sudden, no, you can't do the job, you know. So, it, I mean, I just find it ridiculous. Am I the right size to do a role within the military that a linebacker would be much better suited to do, like carrying around a 50 cal and a whole bunch of ammunition? No, my 170-pound frame is not the best for that. But am I going to be good at a different, you know, a, something else instead? Absolutely. And that's just it. You said diversity, diversity of body types and diversity of, of personality types. You know, there's times where I've gone on a call and someone's been irate and I've been the right fit and managed to de-escalate and get that person to go to hospital. And there's been times where I've gone on a call, not really done anything wrong, but my skin color, tone, accent, whatever, wasn't the right fit. And someone else on my crew was the person that was able to facilitate. That to me is the beauty of diversity. Absolutely. It's, um, it's imperative. And I don't know where the narrative switched, where all of a sudden, you know, women can't do this or shouldn't do that, or they're unable to. Um, but, you know, I, I think it's dying. It's dying slowly, but I, I do think it's dying. Um, and I'm really looking forward to next generations of, of military coming in and, and being able to have doors open and paths paved and, you know, all of these things that, that weren't available or that would be a huge fight for us uh, to be like, Oh no, 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 go ahead. You're the hundredth person, hundredth woman to, to do this. Uh, so we know that you can, and we welcome you, you know, like, I can't wait for that. Yeah. I just hate the fact that, the whole transgender issue is such front and center when, you know, it's such a minute part of this whole conversation. Should people be advocated for? Absolutely. In my opinion, should they be they competing alongside um, the genders that they've become rather than what they were born as? Or should we have a separate group where you've transitioned and that's your bracket that you're in now? That seems a pretty you know simple solution to me so we can fucking move on with this whole thing. But it also seems to dilute so many of the important topics. I mean, the fact that we had a, you know, multiple mass shootings the last few weeks and people are more concerned about who's on the Bud Light can is nauseating to me. Yeah, so there is... Um a committee called Dakowitz, the Defense Advisory Committee on Women in the Services. And I was talking to a former member about cadre clothing, about uh, women in the service and what they need. And she's like, you know, we, I was part of the group that brought this up in the 1970s. Like we argued that women needed female fit and female sized equipment, body armor, and apparel in the 1970s. And I was like, well, that doesn't make me feel any better. Right. Like that, that doesn't make me feel good at all. And she's like, unfortunately, it seems in our jump for equality, they have largely ignored what women need and skipped to what transgender needs. And, you know, again, Inclusion, equality, I get it. And you know, Congress can fight over what federal dollars are going to be paying for what. Uh, that's not my concern. My concern is, can you do your job? Can you do your job effectively? And what can leaders do to ensure that your job is done effectively? How can we train you? 
to how you need to be trained and how can we equip you in order to be the very best weapon system that we have so that America's military can remain the best in the world. That is the biggest concern. So yes, you know, we need to ensure that we are treating everyone with respect, but we cannot ignore this huge problem that we've had since the 1970s, at least, at least have been officially discussed since the 1970s that still haven't been addressed appropriately. Well, I want to get to the problems that you had in uniform and then obviously your transition to creating the solutions. But before we do, let's kind of go to the other side. So I know when you were in the school age, you were actually looking at the sports medicine side. So walk me through those studies. You mentioned 9-11, you know, how that changed your thinking and then your journey into the Marine Corps specifically. Sure. I I was a, a huge soccer player. I, I played soccer since I was six. Um, you know, I was ready to play college soccer. Um, it was, I played year round indoor soccer in the winter. Like I came from a soccer family. Um, so it, it was just a, a huge part of my life. Um, I got severely injured my sophomore year. Um, and I had to do rehab in our sports medicine clinic, uh, and absolutely fell in love with it. So I was there every day for, I think like two months. And so I got to see all the injuries come in and, and what they were doing to help the injuries and the taping. And, um, you know, it was just very acute medicine. Um, so I was like, Hey, I'd, I'd like to do this. Can I be uh, part of your athletic trainer, you know, your student athletic trainer? And so they brought me on and I did it obviously off, you know, not during soccer season, but every other season uh, I was there doing athletic medicine, sports medicine. I was a trainer. I ended up becoming the head trainer. I interned at the McHugh Center at UVA my senior year. Uh, and I was like, this is it. I cannot believe that somebody gets paid to do this. This is what I want to do. I'll go to UVA for four years, um, take the test, then go to Europe, get my physiotherapy degree and, and be an athletic trainer for some European football team. I, like, that was my I like life. the way you say soccer when you played here, but you called it the correct term when you were overseas. So <laughs> my, my brother is a huge Liverpool fan. Uh, so we have to you know, he's corrected me once or twice. Um, and I do respect all the cultures. Um, <laughs> Inclusion. <laughs> exactly. Um, so that, that was it. Um, you know, my first year I was at McHugh Center, uh, you know, just doing very minimal things uh, and still loved it, still couldn't wait. Um and when 9-11 hit, that, there was a huge change. Um, I couldn't imagine spending my life with very privileged athletes forever when I felt like I should be doing another act of service. Um, yes, my grandfather served, my, my father served, um, and my dad always instilled in us that we needed to protect those who couldn't protect themselves. Um, which made me huge anti-bully, by the way, like 
it is a trigger for me. Somebody starts bullying me and it's the only thing that really sets me off um, to this day, by the way. So don't bully me or bad things will happen. Um, so, you know, it was this, this weird debate. Like my entire life had already been planned out. Um, I worked my ass off to, to get to the University of Virginia. And that was the first step to this path that I had already decided. And I just couldn't, couldn't stand by, couldn't continue that. It, it, it was just this feeling I, I couldn't get over. Um, I was part of our search and rescue team at UVA, um, the Blue Ridge Mountain Search and Rescue Team, Burmerg. Um, and they had such an amazing attitude towards medicine and towards life. And, uh, you know, the, their motto was so, so others may live. And, you know, I, I found so much contentment and satisfaction in working with them. And when 9-11 hit and I knew that, okay, well, what's that next step? You know, how can I serve? How can I uh, make a difference in this world? Um, because we just got bullied, right? We just got bullied and I hate bullies. So yeah, I, I knocked on the door of uh, the Marine Corps OTC and we had a very long conversation about why and what was required. And, um, you know, I, they were kind enough to let me work out with them. Uh, I still wanted to be a college student. I, I didn't want to go the ROTC route. Um, so they just worked me into shape, which was great. Uh, I needed it. I had zero idea about the military. So I had no idea what the difference was between an NCO and the CNO and all these acronyms that I didn't quite understand and these initialisms. And, and you know, I was completely lost in the sauce um, about everything. Uh, and so it was, it was tough. Like I had no idea what they were talking about half the time. Um, so it, it was a huge shift. And I remember having to tell my parents, like after I signed up, you know, knowing I was going to go to, to OCS, the OCS route, uh, the Marine Corps requires all of their officers, except for the Naval Academy to go to officer candidate school, even if you are an ROTC. Uh, so I knew that that was the path. Um, and when I signed up, I was like, how do I tell my parents? Right. They were my biggest cheerleaders. They knew the path I was going to take. They were, my brother was excited to go to the premier league, you know, and that, obviously that was going to get tickets for him, you know, 10 years down the road. Um, and so it, it was just, uh, it, it was a interesting dilemma for someone whose parents were so encouraging throughout her entire life that, Hey, by the way, this thing that I've wanted to do since I was a sophomore in high school, I don't want to do it anymore. And instead, I'm going to sign up to go to war. And my dad, of course, was super proud. Um, my mom was like, absolutely not. And I'm like, too late. Love you. <laughs> uh, and I remember uh, the day I got commissioned in Quantico, uh, there was a small break uh, between you know the morning and the actual commissioning ceremony. And we all went out to lunch and my mom pulled me aside and she's like, honey, if you have any doubts, if you do not want to do this, I've got the car and we can just go. 
And I was like, mama, like, I love you, but we're going to get this done and, and we're going to do it. And, and you're going to, you're going to see that it, it's okay. And she ended up, you know, being ridiculously proud of me and putting like my daughter's a Marine, you know, sticker on her car. And, you know, she was, she was very happy in the end, but um, yeah, it, it took, it took some time for them to get used to it. Now, how much did your soccer and your search and rescue training factor into your success physically in the Marine on-ramp? Uh, yeah. Um, so I think as any athlete knows, I, well, as anyone in the currently serving the military, it really helps if you are an athlete prior. Um, the training, the pain, like the mental uh, control that you need, uh, that is great. Land nav, it is completely different doing land navigation in the military than it is in search and rescue. Um, search and rescue, we focus more on orienteering. Uh, so you can read the terrain really well. And land nav, it's just point A to point B, go, right? As fast as you can. Uh, and if you're going over cliffs, you know, oh, well, just make sure you get there, you know, ASAP. Uh, so that one took me a little while to get used to. Um, I wasn't used to getting timed doing land navigation. It was just, you know, a, a lovely point A to point B in a roundabout way. By the way, look for small things, right? Look for people. Um, so that took a, a bit of getting used to, but uh, everything else, I, I think growing up as a soccer player kept my body ready for the demands. Um, now my body still broke. Um, and I'm, you know, I had hip surgery when I was 35. Um, the gear was not fit for me and that's what caused all my injuries. Like so many other women who were medically retired and, and who had to get out. Um, so that's one of the reasons why this is such an important thing for me to be fighting for right now. Um, you know, there, I can't squat, I can't do lunges. So I'm modifying all of my workouts around a very painful hip that I cannot get replaced for another 10 years. Uh, so, you know, it's, we talk about veterans and we talk about the problems after the fact and uh, pain management and suicide. And, you know, a lot of that has to do with loneliness and, you know, traumatic issues that they dealt with while they were in. Uh, but a lot of it also deals with pain. Like they just can't handle the pain anymore. So if we can stop the pain from happening to begin with, you know, again, like you have all of these, these effects that if we can just prevent them, then we don't have to deal with the aftermath. The VA doesn't have to spend millions of dollars. Congress can stop creating options about reducing our disability uh, payments. You know, like there's just a lot of things that we could do to prevent all of this stuff from happening. When we talk about diversity, one of the, the most proactive solutions that I've come across is, uh, and I speak about this a lot because this guy deserves the recognition, but a friend of mine, Chris Hickman, started a firefighter mentorship program here in Ocala, where I live. And what they did is basically they have training, they have equipment, all these young men and women have to do is physically get to this fire station and they will train them for free, equip them. There are um, scholarship opportunities at the fire academy and then the other end of the fire academy, the local departments are just crying out for responders. But what I realize is when you remove the barrier to entry, and especially if you go into 
football teams, softball teams, CrossFit gyms, you know, places where you would find motivated, fit young women, for example, that is how you create diversity. You find, you know, you go into an underserved community and you find the people that would be the best fit for that profession. You don't just scoop up a bunch of people because they have this chromosome or, you know, whatever it is to check a box. You empower the people in that community and you you ask them to rise to the bar that you've set and then they become yet another incredible marine, firefighter, etc. So with you, I mean, you made the comment you should be an athlete before you enter the military. What can we do better as far as inspiring so many of these great female athletes in, in each of the countries listening to, you know, create that um, understanding that you can be a police officer or a firefighter or, or a Marine? You know, this is an option for you. You know, it, it's really interesting when you were talking, I was thinking about uh, the symposium that we had in March I had Mystery Ranch as one of my panelists, and I was telling him, uh, you know, a lot of the pushback that I get is that women are only 15% of the customer base. And for vendors to create and spend our detainee only 15% of their customer base, it's a bad business plan. And he, his response really surprised me. He said, that's on us. If women are 51% of the population and you only have 15%, because hikers are the same, firefighters are the same, you only have 15% of that as your customer base, then we are doing a really poor job attracting that group of people into this hobby, sport, profession, et cetera. And I never really thought of it that way, Um, but he's right. Like it's on the people who have been in the people who are currently serving uh, the hikers, uh, you know, all of these people who enjoy what they're doing to share that with the population that is still trying to figure out what to do. Uh, Shay Haber in her, in her opening speech, she talks about, uh, you know, having a ladder, but pushing it down for that next woman to climb up. You know, instead of us just keep climbing, you know, we make sure that that next person is pulled alongside as well so that they have a pathway up. And it, it's so important to be able to be open to mentorship and to be able to ask or answer those questions that people have to expose these professions to the different communities, because there will be you know, that, that crazy person who wants to become a Marine officer somewhere in a high school who at the time just wants to conform and not, you know, make a a huge fuss or that police officer or that firefighter. And they need that opportunity to actually talk to one or to go and um, train. Uh, We talk about this all the time in terms of training. Like you, you see the women CrossFit, and I point them out every single time some guy says a, a woman isn't physically fit enough to fill in the blank. It's like, are they not physically fit enough genetically, or are we not training them to do their profession correctly? And I think that is a huge difference. Um, so I, I agree with you. Like we, we have an obligation, you know, as firefighters, as, as police, as, Um, you know, federal law enforcement, secret service as military to, especially in male oriented occupations to reach down and 
create uh, an environment where girls, young women can, or young men too, you know, come up and say, Hey, I'm interested in this. Tell me more. Yeah. Especially with the CrossFit. I've done CrossFit for 15 years now. So I've got to see, you know, just this amazing metamorphosis. And, and I would say it was one of the movements that's definitely brought, you know, the, the potential physical ability of the, the female gender to the forefront of the, the men of the world, because you cannot go into a CrossFit gym, you know, unless you are a competitive athlete in the CrossFit space and not have women in your gym that kick your ass in certain workouts. And I go to jujitsu school and I get choked out by people that are, you know, better than me, hands down. And I'm not even talking like black belts. I'm talking about, you know, my belt, a little bit higher. And so, you know, of course, not everything is raw strength. I mean, it goes back to the transgender argument. Of course, there are some genetic elements that if you did the absolute extreme, there's a little bit more strength, a little bit more speed. I mean, that's kind of a, you know, a, 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 a fact as well, based on time, based on, you know, actual weight lifted. But we're not talking about the extremes. We're talking about can you do this profession? And that's not at the 99th percentile. It's further down where most of us, you know, I'm, I'm not this giant, you know, beast of a man. But I was able to be a great firefighter, I'd like to think, for 14 years. So, you know, like you said, it's not the, the, the person, the skin color, the gender, the sexual orientation. It's the desire and the, the, the environment. Are they being trained? Are they being empowered to believe they can do it? And are they the right fit? Because the other beautiful thing about a mentorship program, as what happened with my, my bonus boy, my stepson, he participated for a bit and was like, the fire service isn't for me. And he ended up becoming a mechanic. Beautiful. That's also a huge positive result of this mentorship program. Can you? Is it the right fit? Do you want to put the work in to become a Marine or a firefighter? No. Okay, beautiful. Then you're taking out the pool as well, which is another positive so that we can attract more people that are the right fit. Yeah, I, this all reminds me of uh, Instagram reel I was watching uh, from Joe Rogan. And he was talking about how... I don't know if upset is the right word or disappointed, but he disagreed with the fact that the White House had all women secret service agents. And his point was, you know, he loves women, he loves his wife, he loves his daughters, but he can beat the shit out of all of them. And I think there's this misconception that women in law enforcement, federal law enforcement, local law enforcement, you know, firefighters, military, whatever, when they are approached with an enemy, a bad guy, uh, you know, a suspect, an assailant, etc., that all of a sudden they're in the octagon and they have rules to follow, you know, in terms of, uh, you know, no groin strikes, no eye gouging, you know, all of these things that, you know, Pound to pound, they've got gloves on, they've got um, mouthpieces in, and there's a referee. And this this misconception that pound to pound, a, a woman is not going to beat a man that way. And what is upsetting about that, it, two things, you know, one, you're in a street fight for your life, right? There are no rules in that. And at least in the military, we were taught these combatives. Um, 
you know, I'm going for your groin, your throat, or your, your eyes. Uh, this is my life. I'm not going to make sure that things are uh, competition legal. And, you know, shout out to our combatives instructor, John Garman, down at the Crucible in Fredericksburg. I think they even have shirts that say nothing we teach is competition legal. And I, I remember we were, we were doing, uh, you know, we were doing combatives and it was uh, close quarters day. And uh, I was uh, partnered up with uh, children was probably five, nine, five, ten, 10, uh, but just all muscle, like zero body fat, all muscle. And we had our, our mouth guards in and, um, you know, we actually had rules, no, no eye gouging, no fish hooks. Um, and he's like, all right, we're going to put you in a hallway and we're going to turn off the lights and you guys are just going to, you know, you're going to go at it 70%. So, you know, we're, we're in position and uh, my colleagues, like, I want you to go a hundred percent. And I'm like, dude, I'm not, I'm not going a hundred percent on you. And he's like, no, no, go a hundred percent. And so I started out at 70 and he started screaming at me to go harder. And, you know, we ended up, you know, I put everything that I had on that guy and I walked away with bruised hands, right? I walked away with an injured wrist. I walked away injured. And it was, there's zero way that me as a five foot three, you know, 120 pound girl can fight this guy in a fair fight. But that's why we have technique. That's why we have the new rules of combatives, where if it's my life versus his life, I'm going to do whatever I have to do to survive. And if that means that I am kicking you in the groin, throat punching you, or popping your eyeball out, guess what? That's what I'm doing. You know, I'm not waiting to tap out an arm bar. The second misconception is that we don't have equalizers. Right. It's not like some guy is running up against to the White House and Secret Service is taking out her service weapon, putting it down and being like, all right, let's fight and see who wins. You know, we're not going fisticuffs. You know, the the reason that these these women are trained, the reason that they have tasers and pistols and equalizers of such, the reason that they understand technique and are trained in that technique is to be able to defend themselves, their position to do their job. So yes, I get it. Joe Rogan, you can beat me up. That's great. You know, in a refereed fight with gloves on and a mouthpiece in, I'm guessing I'm not going to last long, you know, but the moment that I front kick your kneecap in and just take my nails and rake them across your face, then we can have a conversation about who is going to come out on top in a, in a fight like that. Interesting. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, I think that's the other thing, like you said, there are tools that we use these days. I mean, look at war. It's, it's now shifting to robots like we talked about before we hit record. The creepy AI is listening to this whole conversation and taking notes right now. No offense, AI, please don't zap me. Um, but yeah, I mean, you forget, like there are some incredible, some of the best competitive shooters on the planet are women, you know, and that is a tool as well. Now, you know, if you were just thinking about creating a line of pure muscle mass, then it would be nothing but six foot five giant dudes protecting the president, but it's not, you know, you look at your average seal or Delta guy or SAS, I mean, they're not these monsters. They're actually kind of, 
you know, mesomorphs. They're kind of the middle athletic group. So there is this kind of fallacy that you need to be this giant. Now, are there pros to being, you know, a 250-pound, six-foot-two dude, for example? Yeah, but there are also cons. If you're in a foot pursuit, how long are they able to maintain chasing someone who just snatched someone's child? You know, so, I mean, that's the problem with this diversity thing. You can't be myopic and go with a stereotype. There's a reason why those women are there. They obviously, you know, got to the point where they were able to be at the tip of the spear. So it is it is a little ignorant to kind of go back to that. And, and But it's the separate conversation with a powerlifting competition, you know, a male and a female. That's a, that's a, that's a different entire conversation. The, the man is going to, the same exact skill set, a male is going to be able to squeak out a few more pounds than a, than a female. But that's not what we're talking about. That's not a Marine or a firefighter. That's a whole different conversation. And it, it's always funny, you know, you see all these memes uh, saying, you know, just, and it's usually bashing officers. And, you know, I'm, I, I married an enlisted guy, so a former enlisted guy. I just want to throw that out there. I'm not getting court-martialed. Um, so I am constantly dealing with uh, his friends who love to make fun of the fact that I'm an officer. Uh, and, you know, a lot of the memes that they sent me usually are around like, oh, just because you can get a perfect PFT score doesn't mean that you're a great leader. Or, you know, just because you can crush you know, whatever physical requirement doesn't mean that you're a good leader. It's like, okay, well, you can't have it both ways. You can't say, you know, just because this dude is, you know, the most amazing physical athlete doesn't make him a good leader. Got it. Just because she can't deadlift as much as he can doesn't mean that she's not going to be a good leader. And so I, again, yes, it, it goes back to diversity. It goes back to perspectives and, and leadership and the capabilities that each one of these service members brings to the fight. Um, and so it's just very frustrating to see this old school mentality of, you know, women can't drag a, a guy out of a burning building. Women can't, um, you know, arrest a suspect. Women can't you know, do a 26 mile ruck march. Um, you know, all of these things of based on these capabilities of, of of what? Well, one, yes, they can. They've done it. They have been doing it for a very long time. So now what is your argument? Yeah, exactly. Well, I want to get to, to what you're doing now. So I know the origin story of the the kind of uh, the genesis of your business now, revol excuse me, revolves around a knife. So let's talk about that story and then walk through your transition out and into what you're doing now. Sure. My, my lucky knife. Um, when I was second lieutenant, I went and bought a knife and it, it wasn't anything special. It's not like a Chris Reed or Strider knife or, you know, one of these $500 knives. Um, it was just a, a simple knife that fit my hand. Um, and I carried with me everywhere, um, you know, in uniform on deployments. I was a East Asia FAO. So it, traveled, you know, to all these different countries with me. Um, and it, it was just this, this piece of me that gave me a little bit of comfort, uh, familiarity. And when I was, uh, in a military, uh, training exercise, um, 
you know, I was running through the woods. We had to wear all civilian attire um, for OPSEC reasons, obviously. And um, I had a pair of pants that I bought from REI and they were female fit, obviously. Um, but they had like four pockets and the front pockets were these angled, very shallow pockets. Uh, but they were the only thing available hiking pants that, that fit me. Um, so I stuck my knife there and we were running around and, uh, I stopped and reached for my knife and it wasn't there. So it had just popped out somewhere, uh, along the path. And so one, yes, heartbroken that this knife that I had so much history with was gone. Um, but two, we were eating MREs the whole 45 days. And I had no way of opening up my MREs because I didn't have an extra knife. Uh, yes, two is one, one is done. Learned that the hard way. Um, but luckily, a, a colleague there um, had those uh, keychains, a uh, Swiss Army knife keychain. And so he gave me that. So for the next however long, I was like sawing open you know, my MREs with a little mini saw. Um, but that night, I ended up creating the first iteration of the Valkyrie, um, designing that with pockets, uh, female fit, uh, durable pants that could last 45 days in the field without getting washed. Um, you know, all of these things that, that I needed that the current market didn't have. So once I ended up getting back to the unit, um, I remember going to supply and being like, Hey, um, can I get female specific fit on all of these things? Um, at this point I, I was in a SOCOM unit. Um, so I just assumed that SOCOM with all of its money would have female fit stuff. Um, you know, Marine Corps, we do more with less. I, I never expected to have anything that actually fit me there. Uh, but again, SOCOM, lots of money. Um, so the, the supply guy was just like, Hey, I can't give you something that doesn't exist. No one makes female specific anything. Um, so, you know, that, that pissed me off, um, for many reasons. Uh, but I was still in, uh, I had designed these pair of pants and I really wanted someone to make them. And so I, I was able to work through a, a, a prototype and I went to some pretty high, um, industry leaders, um, some very successful industry leaders, uh, said, Hey, I need you to make these pants. Um, and they were like, there is no market for women in the tactical space. One actually told me I will never make female anything. And I just, again, got pissed off. Like it wasn't a disappointment. It was just a I am your customer. Like I'm asking for this. I, I need this. And, you know, again, they're, they're focused on that 85%. Um, so I ended up saying, screw it. Like I'll do it myself. Um, I was able to partner with first Spear for the first year. Uh, they kind of kept me under their wing, kind of introduced me to the industry, this insane military industry of apparel and uh, gear. Um, and then I ended up going off on my own uh, to really pursue 
not just the apparel side, but you know, this mission to ensure that women have everything they need to excel uh, in this occupation. Um, so, yeah, we we ended up learning a lot. <laughs> uh, it's not a great industry to be in. Um, it's very cutthroat, uh, and they still don't take the female warfighter seriously. Um, so it's, it's definitely an uphill battle. It's definitely a challenge. Uh, but, uh, you know, these women are amazing and, uh, just absolute badasses. Uh, and it is a disservice that they're so underserved in this market. So let's uh, elaborate on that a little bit. We talked a little while ago now, for example, about the body armor. And I was even asking you about the kind of Bodicea style bust, you know, if that was even a possibility, because obviously we're all different shapes and sizes, even within the same gender. We're anything from, you know, skinny as a rake, which I'm not too far from through to the linebacker that I referred to and everything in between. But then anatomically and physiologically, you've got the female form, which again has has two diverse spectrums. So what was some of the, you mentioned the kind of the injuries and the health issues, as well as the performance side. What is the detriment that you found in the field yourself and, and the women that you spoke to um, as far as wearing male equipment on the female body? So we'll, we can start with physical first. Um, you know, if, if you can imagine uh, you're 170 pounds, I'm guessing you're, you're quite tall and lean. Uh, so if you can imagine wearing like a 250 pound, you know, man's pants and then cinching that belt down so that it doesn't drop, um, you know, that that's basically what we're dealing with here. Um, you know, a lot of these women are, are choosing pants, especially that just fit their hips, which if they're meant for men, that means it goes straight up. And so they are having to deal with, you know, this incredible waist gap, uh, extra three to four inches, you know, uh, in their crotch, um, you know, the, the leg, uh, legs are way too wide. Uh, they're just dragging a lot and that's making them very slow. Um, the blouses are fitting their, their breast size. Uh, so you get, you know, someone who might be five, one, but they have to wear an extra, extra large blouse, uh, in order for it to button over their breast size. And so that shoulder seam is halfway down their bicep and it's not making their, um, their body armor fit correctly. Um, you know, the, the helmets are unfortunately not, not fit for hair. And, and so you, you have, uh, you know, all of these, these issues with, uh, the hair situation with helmets. And luckily the army has come out with their H bracket, which has been a little bit more comfortable for, for buns. Um, but even to this day, you get in the prone and that helmet just goes right over your eyes. Um, and, you know, they, they're dealing with, um, you know, migraines and hair loss, um, because of their, their hair standards, which, uh, you know, all of the, the armed services are, um, loosening up those those hair requirements because of all of these issues that um, these hair standards are, are causing, um, and then you go down to these packs, and the torsos are too too long for a lot of these women, and the harness shoulder straps are too wide, um, and so you know, as I mentioned before, they're they're using their hands to to pull in their straps. Um, that that low um, you know torso uh, hip. 
is is not sitting correctly. And, and so there's a lot of pressure. Um, they're, they're having to torque their bodies in a way so that that C-spine loses that padding. Um, and then, you know, the boots, you know, we're still getting issued men's boots and women's feet are not just a, a smaller size men's feet um, because of the, our pelvis and the Q angle of our femur, our feet are shaped and sized differently to distribute weight properly. And so putting us in a male last is causing, you know, these knee problems, these hip problems, these ankle problems and Achilles problems. And, and so we're, we're having a lot of, of injuries based on just the, the simple fact that we're in the wrong gear. Um, and then this false sense of security because uh, our body armor is <laughs> just doesn't fit. Um, you know, someone, whoever made this decision just erroneously assumed that the shorter a woman gets the narrower her shoulders and the smaller her boobs. And that's just clearly not the case for so many of us. Um, and so what you're, you're seeing is, um, you know, these women who are sitting in a convoy or sitting down and body armor is either jamming into their thighs, cutting off circulation or jamming up, you know, their chin so they can't see. So they're either taking the body armor off so that they can function or they're losing feeling in their legs. So they can't ingress, egress out of a vehicle very well. So all of these these things are, are making it um, it's almost detrimental to their capabilities. And then if you want to talk about the, the cognitive issues, you know, this when they're on their X and, and they're fidgeting with their gear because it doesn't fit, well, now they're distracted and they're not focused on the mission. They're focused on the fact that nothing fits them, you know, that things are, are flopping all over the place. And, you know, they're just trying to make the best of the situation. Uh, and they found that, you know, this, this cognitive dysfunction uh, limits their ability to shoot, move, communicate, you know? So a, a lot of the times, you know, people are like, well, you're just complaining because it's uncomfortable. It's uncomfortable for the men too. Well, first off, if it's uncomfortable for the men, you have that power to get better gear. So do it. Uh, but two, it's not just about discomfort, right? It is about ensuring that we are that weapon system that you trained us to be and that we are as fast as possible, as accurate as possible, and that we're not going to be getting injured in five years. Now, you mentioned the um, the pants that you lost the knife on were civilian pants, REI. Talk to me about the the uniform and the pockets for, for the actual, you know, when you were deployed. I mean, I've heard you talk about using a pocket for a tampon, for example, something that a man wouldn't really think about, you know, maybe it'd be a cigar or something instead. But, but um, you know, these are real things. I know you on your website, you've got um, hygiene in the field, a blog about that. Well, you know, as a man, you're not thinking twice about, you know, how do you menstruate in the middle of war, for example? Yeah, so we designed the Valkyrie uh, based on all the problems that we had in the field. Uh, so everything that we did was solution-based. Um, we have got 11, 11 pockets. The back welt pockets are fit for M4 mags. Uh, the majority of people put their cell phones in them. Um, but we chose bellowed cargo pockets. So you know the, the big thing now, especially for men, are these low-vis cargo pockets, uh, which are technically just welt pockets, right? They, they go up against the skin. They, they go inside. Um, we went the opposite route. Um, as you know, women's thigh shapes are all different. And we wanted to make sure that no matter your thigh size, you could still use those cargo pockets. So for a lot of women, they're in these, you know, low-vis, high-speed, 
uh, you know, tactical pants and they can't put anything in their pockets. So we wanted to ensure that that, that wasn't happening for us. Uh, the tampon pocket is essential uh, for hygiene because of, if you can imagine all the crap that you put in those cargo pockets, right? You're putting brass, you're putting like just disgusting things in there. Um, and you don't want to have a tampon mixing in with lead and brass and, and all of that. Um, so we just had a separate pocket uh, to ensure that women stayed healthy in, in the field. Um, we added waste gussets to our, our waste uh, for that extra bloat that we get every month. Uh, so, you know, a lot of times and, and many women, you know, this is not uncommon for women. They'll understand this, but uh, they buy what's called period pants. So if as a designer, if you're 27 inches in your waist, you know, three, three weeks out of the month, but one week out of the month, you are 31, 32 inches in your waist. Like that's a huge difference. And I need to be able to account for that. And so we put extra stretchy material uh, to waist gussets in for for that stretch. Um, we put a very extended crotch gusset uh, with that stretching material to add in movement uh, to make things squat proof. Um, a lot of women are blowing out crotches on the range. So we needed to make sure that uh, that didn't happen for us, especially when you're out in the field. Um, we also created uh, the pant with a, a mid rise instead of a low rise. Um, and this was it's probably the most interesting debate uh, that I have. So women are typically more comfortable with a, not like super low rise, but with a lower rise everyday pant that rests like pretty much under their belly button. Um, and I first made the Valkyrie like that. And then I put a gun belt on and tested it and ran around and did crazy things. And that gun belt started going up to the most narrow part of my waist. So every single time I stopped, I would have horrific camel toe. <laughs> and I'm just like spending all this time, like pulling my pants, you know, my thighs to like have some relief. I'm like, okay, this is not going to work. It might do. We need it might to... be a distraction for the enemy. <laughs> oh God, it's so uncomfortable. Um, so we knew that it, it needed to rest on top of the hips because of that. Um, and I actually ended up talking to a, a few cops and I asked them what, what pants they wear. And they're like, well, we wear the men's pants. And I said, well, you know, these very popular vendors, you know, made specifically for you have women's fit pants. Why don't you wear them? And they're like, they're not squat proof. The waist is so low that I can't squat down without showing my butt crack. And that's one thing I definitely do not want to do when I'm on the force. And I was like, yep, totally get it. And, you know, it, unfortunately this idea that it's more comfortable if we, you know, make the, the rise lower has somehow infected or infested into a lot of the military clothing now. And so women are choosing that, that man's fit because someone who didn't know what they were doing, who had never been out in the field, who, um, who knows, uh, said, oh, well, women like this lower rise, so that's what we're going to make these tactical functional pants with. See, it's interesting because you talked about the footwear earlier and taking gender out for a second, through my career in the fire service, there was this kind of, again, fallacy, I'm assuming from people that really didn't do the job, that a firefighter, not in the fire, that's a whole different set of equipment and footwear, 
day to day wearing our blues suited and booted that we needed to have steel toes and steel shanks so you end up with these incredibly heavy stiff um boots and most of my career i just shifted to regular sneakers and we get told off, oh, you need to change it. Okay, put them back on. As soon as they've gone, take them off again. Because there wasn't going to be any change in their mind, but it was lunacy to me. Like you watch an officer in a foot pursuit, you know, should you be in flip-flops? No. But you look at a lot of the special operators, they're not wearing steel shanks, steel toe cap, leather boots. They're wearing the light, you know, almost like the, the longer ankled sneaker, basically, because that's what actually works. So... It's funny how, you know, there's such a disconnect between some of these designers and what we actually need. And the missing part is simply having the humility to say, what do you need? Give me your input. What works? What doesn't work? I, and I, I will say that is one great thing about not knowing anything about the clothing industry when I first started. Um, so, you know, here I am pissed off at the world uh, because I was told I, I was basically invisible uh, and that my needs didn't matter. And I decided to start this company, yet I knew nothing about the clothing industry. I knew nothing about design and I couldn't even sew besides like a button, right? Um, so I ended up getting this amazing design team uh, out of Chicago and they are designers. That's what they do. And our conversations typically go like, I need to solve this problem. You figure out how to do so. And that is what directs all of our designs. And they'll push back and be like, this is not industry standard, or this isn't um, you know, what we typically do. This is not what looks good. And I'm like, got it. I don't care. Like the, the reason that industry standard isn't working is because they're not being functional with their clothing. I don't care how chic we look. Like, I don't care if, um, you know, that design is going to be on a runway somewhere. What I need is this to be functional. And I still don't know all of the lingo. You know, I'll, I'll tell them like, we're, we're creating this executive suit and, you know, I'll just sit there and I'll be like, we need to, to be able to, you know, do this. And I'm like pushing my arms in front of me, like I'm hugging somebody. And they're like, you need to hug someone. And I'm like, no, I need to tackle someone. I need to be able to tackle someone in a suit without the shoulders ripping. And I need to be able to, you know, move my arm from, from down below to up above my head, you know, without things going all crazy and, and weird. Like I need to be able to have full mobility and function in my clothes. Let's figure out how to do that. And it takes a very long time because most of the things I'm asking for are, we've never done this. You know, we have no idea. Let's try, you know, three or four different prototypes and three or four different ideas uh, to find the best solution. Um, and again, that goes back to a lot of it comes down to fabric. Let's have the best fabric so that it can move, so that it can be wicking, so that it doesn't wrinkle, so that I can run a marathon in the suit, throw it in a suitcase, fly six hours, hang it up and, and it's good again, you know, so that these guys don't have to find a dry cleaner in, in Cambodia. Well, I've, I've even found that as you know, on the civilian side, outside of my uniform, you know, I, I did martial arts for a long time. And back in the day, it was Taekwondo. So I used to envision if 
anyone ever attack me, I would kick him in the head. And then obviously I realize now that most combat is going to look very different than that. But it kind of illustrated the point. I'm driving along and I do see smoke coming out of a house or there is an upturned car or, you know, someone says something to you know, my wife and is being aggressive. Like outside of our professions, our regular clothes also need to allow us to do certain things. And, and you know, we talked about um, 511 is one of the, the companies that sponsors the show and I wear a lot of their stuff. And I'm a man. So obviously it's, it's you know, the design is aimed primarily at my gender as well. So that's helpful, even though I'm six foot tall and 170. So finding that length and that waist size for me is actually very hard as well. But I'm choosing footwear and jeans and things like that that will allow me to chase someone, to climb a fence, to do whatever I need to do. Because it's not just in our roles that we need that. I think, you know, every day and sometimes, I mean, you watch the dudes that have the the, the uh, jeans like halfway down their legs. Whatever people's impression of that is irrelevant. Like functionally, that's a horrible idea to, you know, to, to escape, to fight, etc. So I'm kind of looking at it the other way. So certainly in the tactical space, that needs to be the case. And you look at the locker room of you know, everyone's favorite athletes, all their stuff is tailored to them. But we've got people whose lives are at stake and they're wearing, for example, I mess with so many of my, my sister firefighters, you know, there's men's shirt that's tucked in, and, you know, and they've got like two inches of just tuck in their belt. And then, like you said, the pants that don't fit. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think it's, it's common sense, but I, I think there really is a superpower, though, into not being in that industry and coming at it from a completely different space. And even when I started this podcast, I didn't Google, how do you start a podcast? I didn't Google, you know, what questions should you ask or any of that stuff. I just listened to people like Joe Rogan and Tim Ferriss and some other ones. And I'm like, I really like the way they do it. I have no idea how to do it. So I'm going to start from scratch and build my way up. So I think from an innovation side, that's exactly what needs to happen because more often than not, what's probably happening is one company's copying the next and trying to rival them and they're not actually reverse engineering to the needs of the person on the street or in the field. And I, I think we've been, I, I don't know the correct word for this, but uh, high fashion tends, has or quick fashion has ruined a lot of things for us. Um, you know, this, this trendy on trend sweatshops, uh, you know, get a look and, uh, you know, it's in your stores, you know, two weeks later or, or whatever. Um, you know, my, we, we've got 72 different sizes for our pants uh, based on uh, hip waist and inseam. And everyone was telling me like, you'll never survive. You'll never survive this. Um, and there's at some point there's this obligation to the people that we serve, right? I'm not trying to outfit uh, some some trendy, you know, high schooler who is going shopping every week to to find new clothes. Um, you know, there is an obligation that the women that I'm serving are putting their lives on the line. These first responders, the military. And they need to have clothes that fit them in order to do their job effectively. And so, yes, 72 different sizes, I get it. But I think we owe it to the women, to the men uh, that are, are willing to risk their lives, uh, who might not be coming home, to provide them with, with everything that they need. Like you said, like they, 
the, the very well-paid and, and high, high salaried athletes have everything tailored to them because their body shapes are obviously outside the industry standard. And yet the men and women who are guarding the stadiums or guarding them or who are willing to run towards the commotion, run towards the gunfight are the ones that are, are suffering the most from what we are able to provide for them. So I, you know, I just challenge this industry to, to do better. We can do better, um, you know, and, and stop worrying about this, you know, this bottom line of uh, how can we make more money? How can we outsource? How can we, you know, cut costs? Like what children can we pay a penny a day to, to put on buttons? Um, you know, we, we really need to focus on the, the stakeholders instead of the shareholders of, of this industry, because these are the people that need it the most. And we talk about this, you know, this idea of patriotism. We talk about, um, you know, how great America is, yet we're not willing to, to not make as much money. We're not willing to uh, put a little bit more RDT&E on, on designs. We're not willing to get better fabrics, uh, create better fit, do the research for the people who are defending that. And to me, that just that makes zero sense. I watched a documentary. It was probably a couple of years ago now, but it was on the kind of disposable clothing crisis and that you know, a lot of the the donations, again, quote unquote, that we send overseas, more often than not, it's almost like a dumping ground because we consume so many clothes, so ch- so many cheap clothes. And, you know, there's literally this element now where, you know, I don't want to wear the same thing twice, which is ridiculous. And I think we've gone so far from quality. And that's like, what I've talked about a lot recently. I'm watching the American mall dying. And I think it's a good thing. Because if you think about, I mean, I wasn't an American child, but my wife romanticized about being in the mall, but you sift through racks of clothing and you sift through CDs and you're basically there to consume, you know, your orange Julius and your pretzel, you're just, you're consuming. You're not even really interacting that much. I mean, teenagers maybe, but by the time you're an adult, you go in there, you're just buying a bunch of shit and you're coming it back. And now we have these online stores, and I think that's a beautiful thing because now I'm hoping that these spaces will not go away forever, but they will become communal spaces again, restaurant, butcher, baker, you know, cafes, breweries, whatever it is, where people convene and interact and they're artisan again. And I feel like that needs to happen also with furniture and with clothing, that you're okay spending X amount of dollars because you know those pants are going to be in your closet for a long, long time because they're well-made, they're durable. And ultimately, as you said, hopefully they're they're American-made. We start bringing all our industry, not all, but a lot of it back and employing our own people. So getting away from that kind of McDonald's fast food clothing philosophy and going back into the kind of the tailor, the person who made you your favorite jacket, your favorite pair of trousers that last a long, long time and therefore can actually be made for you, the individual. Yeah. So when we, we first were trying to figure out how to do this sizing system, uh, we really wanted to do made to order and no one in the U S was willing to take us on. Uh, India does it really well. Uh, Columbia, I believe does it really well. Uh, but the U S was like, Nope, like we, we want MOQ. We want, here's your minimum. Uh, you need to purchase it from us. And you know, that's that. And 
you know, obviously as a, a veteran owned company, keeping everything in the United States is extremely important. Um, not just because, you know, yay USA, but uh, because I know exactly how people are getting treated here in the US uh, as in East Asia fail. I understand the other side of that as well, you know, the sweatshops. And um, while companies can say that, you know, they are sustainably made in an ethical way, like, okay, got it. Um, there, there's just a lot of doubts in that. Um, so keeping things here in the U.S. was extremely important to me. Unfortunately, that skill set left when we started outsourcing. And we are limited in both uh, domestic manufacturing and uh, textiles. Uh, it is coming back. Uh, there are some amazing companies out there that I'm currently using. Uh, there are some amazing factories that are getting uh, started all around the country. And hopefully it's going to start bringing more people to do domestic manufacturing instead of going overseas, um, especially with taxes and tariffs and imports and, and all of these requirements and delays because of COVID, um, you know, I'm hoping to see that everything starts turning inward so that we can start producing everything at an affordable cost. Um, you know, our, our prices are high and our prices are high because everything is made here. Um, you know, the buttons are made here, like everything is made here. Uh, and that was very important but it also comes with a, a cost that not everyone understands. I'm not going to pay $200 for a pair of pants. Okay, well, one, you can pay $50 four times because the quality isn't as good. Um, or you can pay you know, $200 this one time. And I mean, I'm still wearing uh, the, a pair of pants from our very first run, uh, from our very first prototype, they even have like completely different zipper pulls on it because my zipper pulls weren't in at the time. Uh, and they've served me well. Uh, you know, and that's, that's the quality that we can produce here in the United States. It's just a lot of people are so used to buying pants for $60, buying paints for $70 because, you know, they're getting them made in Bangladesh and in Vietnam and, you know, nothing against those those countries, the sewers are phenomenal sewers. Um, but you know, you're you're just gonna get stuck with you know, that quality and then that uh, you know, a little bit of ethical confusion on whether, you know, some can you smell the sweat and the tears of the child who just sewed that hymn. Um, so, you know, it, it is it's an interesting industry for sure. And I, I hope that it continues to this push of, of local and um, domestic manufacturing. I heard Jocko talking a while ago when he started Origin Jeans about they literally couldn't even find a person to operate the loom that they wanted to use to create their very first denim. And they had to do this kind of search over the, certainly the whole state. And they found a, a guy who was much, much older that was then able to start training people. And that, that was terrifying to me. And it's the same with, um, I had DJ Vanis on, and he's talking about the kind of the squashing of Native American culture. And you think about all the ancient wisdom that will be lost if, you know, languages and, and stories are lost amongst that as well. You mentioned about being deployed in on, in East Asia. So talk to me, uh, you know, paint the landscape of that. Were you able to see the the Indian, for example, 
arm of an American company in some of these sweatshops or some of these environments that these families are working under? Um, I, I saw a little bit in, in Indonesia um, and then a little bit in Vietnam. Um, and I think more importantly, though, you, you see it in the markets. You see the uh, rejects um, or the, you know, the little bits that fell off the back of the truck. Um, and you're looking at these and you're like, these are exactly what I would buy in the United States for eight times this amount. And so you just start questioning your own reality of, of how much you added to that and how much consumerism, you know, you are willing to take a part of. And, you know, I'm a capitalist. I love it. But I also do believe that we have a responsibility um, to make the world a better place and to not encourage this type of treatment uh, to people. Yes, I do understand. And, and I, I get into this argument all the time that the salary that a lot of these people are paying is good for that country, for that GDP, for, for that. Like, I understand that. But the conditions in which they are working would never fly over here. And just because it is acceptable in another country doesn't mean that we should accept it here. So, you know, I, it's a, it's a very difficult conversation to have because I, I, I'm not, you know, I don't want to blast these other companies for, for choosing to go overseas Uh, as a businesswoman. Um, I understand that going offshore is going to be the difference to whether your your company you know survives or doesn't, uh, and I know that there have been a, a huge push to ensure that these conditions are um, ethical and that they are fair. Um, I just know for myself and for my company, they are not going to be to the standards that the U.S. has. And I don't want to be the reason that, again, some some child is is putting buttons on for pennies. Well, it reminds me of the drug prohibition conversation. I think it was Ed Calderon I was talking to. But when you think about, for example, you know, South and Central America, um, and where there was, you know, the cocaine, the cocoa plants or whatever it was. And obviously there's so much corruption around that and a lot of these farmers are threatened and that's their only livelihood. And you know, the argument as well, if you if you kind of took away the prohibition of drugs, then what would happen to those farmers? Well, they wouldn't be under the the watch of some shitbag anymore because supply and demand. And so they'd probably grow hemp or coffee or tea or all these other things that you can also grow and make a living. So I think that's the thing with the sweatshop. You can vote with your dollar and say, actually, I want it made here. Or you show me that your factory in Indonesia or Vietnam is on par with what you'd have in the U.S., but it's a cheaper, you know, cheaper labor because of the exchange rate, whatever you want to want to present it as. That's a whole different conversation. But if it's just the mighty dollar, then you're talking the difference between price and cost. And I would argue, you know, you can buy a hamburger for a dollar in America. You can buy a big glug for two dollars. But what's the cost of that? Look at the health of this country. 
So it's not all about the mighty dollar. There's a much bigger picture to how much you quote unquote saved. Yeah, I, I really like that price versus cost thing. Um, and unfortunately, a lot of Americans don't even consider it, right? They don't even, it, it doesn't even cross their mind as they're they're going, you know, talking on their Apple phone and, you know, dealing with their, you know, whatever computers and going to the store and, and buying all these conveniences. Uh, you know, America's famous for paying more for convenience and they don't want to question why it's convenient for them. And, you know, you, you see the switch a little bit, you see these farm to tables, you see, um, you know, local manufacturing coming back and, um, you know, it, it's, it's definitely a positive turn, uh, especially with COVID, especially with how things are going. We're seeing, you know, we were very ill-prepared for that, uh, you know, and we shouldn't have food shortages here in the United States. Um, so, you know, I, I think this was a big wake up call for a lot of people. Uh, on the clothing side, it was a huge wake up call for majority of people who went offshore because they were not getting their shipments in. And a lot of things stayed, you know, out of stock. Um, but, you know, again, there's just, there's a lot of, a lot of work to do. Um, you know, there's a lot of capabilities that offshore and overseas have that we don't. And like you said, we, we have to get trained by that older generation that, that did it before everyone decided to go offshore. Um, you know, and that is a, a dying art and it goes down to, to trades as well. You know, electricians, plumbing, everyone's going to college. Well, you know, they really should be looking at trades as well because we're, we're running out of those. So, you know, there, there is a, a, a cultural shift that I'm seeing, especially post COVID, but uh, we still have a lot of room to grow as well. Well, there's one more topic I want to pick your brains on, and then we'll go to some closing questions and tell everyone where they can find all the products. But there seems to be a kind of grumbling when it comes to Asia. You know, you've got this kind of Russia-Ukraine thing going on that seems to have spurred fears with China and Taiwan. Um, you have this, you know, this Asian perspective working in um, East Asia, working in Korea. So when you look at that threat, you know, what is the reality for you through your own eyes? Because most of us are so ignorant to, to any of the politics or kind of the, the reality. We're just seeing what's pumped through our, uh, our news channels and social media pages. Yeah, so uh, Asian politics, um, it's like a chess game or a game of Go for all of my uh, Asian listeners out there, people who've been there. Um it's pretty impressive. There is a lot of work to maintain the status quo, um, a lot of work and success is maintaining the status quo. Um, China has been a threat for decades. It's just, we didn't really want to talk about it. Um, what I am discouraged about is when we see the government finally doing something, say about TikTok, you know, pushing back against uh, something that's Chinese owned, you see all these people talking about, over, you know, government's overstepping, the government's going to have access to, to our phones. Um, and it infuriates me because it's like, just, just read a book. Actually, let me throw out a book for everyone to read. Um, 
While you're looking that up, I can't imagine the world without people lip syncing and dancing to seven minute sections of music. So we're going to be lost if TikTok goes. <laughs> All right. Everyone needs to read The Wires of War by Jacob Helberg. Um, just for shits and giggles. And then you all can come and talk to me about uh, why everyone needs TikTok. Um, you know, China is extremely advanced. They, they have an amazing plan. Um, their soft power is uh, so impressive. Um, and people are, are talking about this, this Chinese dominance and the fact that the U.S. is losing uh, its influence in the world. And a lot of that comes down to soft power. You know, if, if we're saying, Hey, um, play with us, but here are the restrictions, uh, especially when it comes to, uh, human rights violations or your, you playing with other people that we don't like, right? Here are all these restrictions. If you meet these restrictions, then we will give you aid. Then we will help you out. And you have China coming in saying, we don't care what you do as a country. Uh, in fact, we're going to bring in all of our equipment so that we can build up your infrastructure so that we can build your roads. Uh, and by the way, here's our amazing 5G technology that we're going to work with you to put up all over the place. And for a country that is really not growing because the U.S. is restricting them or because of those restrictions that the U.S. has provided. They're not growing because we're maintaining the status quo because we don't have, you know, all of these billions to invest in a certain country for that growth. And then you see China saying, hey, we'll do this. We just want to be the one in charge of your technology. You know, as a, a leader of a country, like it's, it's kind of a no brainer, right? Okay, fine. Come in, build my roads, build up my infrastructure, create these bridges, uh, you know, bring 5G into my country so that we have internet. Now, do they have back doors to all of that? Can they access all of that technology that they just put in? You know, I, I'm not the one to say, but, you know, if you look at that and if you believe that they have that capability and then you look at an app like TikTok that... And the privacy side says, we're going to be able to access everything on your phone. You start to wonder, why do they need that access? What are they looking for? Why do they need to know what's on my phone? Do they have access to my photos and my videos? Are they going to use that? You know, and sure, for a young 18-year-old, 15-year-old, whatever, it's probably not that big of a deal. No, but for someone of power, for a government official, um, for a government official's kid, then all of a sudden, well, what can they do with that access? Are you a complete angel on your phone? Do you only look up the Wall Street Journal and you know the Washington Post? Are you only taking pictures of your dog? You know, do you never sign or you know link up to a, a certain place? Are you always in the exact same place you're supposed to be, or are you building up a case that they can use later? You know, it's, there there are a lot of concerns, there are a lot of fears that you know the government finally was like, hey, this is a really bad thing. We need to stop it. And instead of explaining that to the American people, 
instead of just saying, here are the threats, they just said, China is a threat. We're going to get rid of TikTok. And as someone who is a huge fan of communication, like that's not how you do it, right? Like we really need someone to explain that. And yes, I get it. Like a person is smart. People are stupid. They're not going to handle it. You need to give us a little bit more credit. You can't just take something off the table and, and not explain why. So, you know, my, my, my biggest thing is everyone's so focused on North Korea because they're the ones that make the biggest boom. And China is doing this slow burn. And yeah, we, we, need to, we need to pay attention to that more so than we needed to pay attention to North Korea. Well, this circles back to your grandfather experience. You know what I mean? We're, we're hearing, you know, little buttons being threatened to be pushed again now. When I grew up in, you know, the, the kind of tail end, I guess, of the Cold War, and there was a, a sh- uh, God, what was it called? It was animation, When the Wind Blows, and it was absolutely terrifying. And it was about nuclear holocaust when I was a child. You know, there was this very dark television in the UK when I was growing up, including our PSAs. But that is a terrifying prospect. And now, like you said, these egos and I mean, even our own country, you talk about the arrogance of, oh, we won't understand. You talk about the lack of communication. There's a virus. Wear this mask, take this vaccine and stay in your house. You know, that, that was it. That's what all got people got, you know, and ended up being the very polar opposite of how you forge resilience and immunity and mental health is what they were told. Just order food and they'll deliver alcohol and shut the fuck up is basically what people got and so this is what's happening when we have poor leadership in our country too so we've got this perfect storm of all these people posturing in other countries these last two fucking idiots that we've had and i'll say that freely i can't stand the left or the right i mean we haven't had a leader in this country for a long time and so you've got this complete breakdown in fact you've got the division of this country the deliberate division so this united front that we would need god forbid someone threatened our country has been split now well i'm this and i'm that and i'm black lesbian you know democrat well i can't talk to you because you're it's just it's it's insane but to a complete layman like myself it's just blatantly obvious and that's what's so frustrating is that people are allowing themselves to be divided and broken down physically and mentally. I mean, physically, if you come to America in 2023, how terrifying is that when you walk into a Walmart? You know, I mean, we are a very sick culture and that's never discussed. We're too busy worrying, like I said, about what's on the fucking Bud Light can rather than the fact that we have an obesity epidemic, a suicide epidemic, and we've got these very, very powerful countries posturing to possibly bomb and you know kill our children so i think do i think you know i hope it's not going to be an immediate threat but this is the conversation that we need to have and voices like yourself the people that are actually understanding this because i don't but i'm all ears this is what we need to know so do we need to be scared now you know what can we do to lower that threat and you know and then like you said take away some of this trigger mentality like oh you can't take my tiktok it's you know my first amendment right you know ben franklin fought for tiktok no he didn't you know what I mean? So actually choose your battles and triage what is actually the most important thing for your country. Should we talk about transgender athletes 24-7? Or should we maybe address the mental health crisis that's included in the execution of our children in our schools? Maybe that's worthy of some conversation as well. And I, I think we'd be remiss to to not note the fact that we're not the only ones fighting ourselves. 
Um, you know, whenever there's a conspiracy theorist theory that my parents have obviously adopted from Facebook, um, which is ironic because they were never on Facebook until COVID. Um, I, I always, you know, I, I tell them here's the truth, right? But also please stop giving in to the propaganda from other countries. Like there are brilliant propagandists and brilliant information operation officers out there from nefarious countries who are trying to separate us and trying to divide us. And they're doing a great job and they've got the Twitter accounts. They've got the TikTok accounts. They've got, you know, all of these things, discord accounts, right? They, they've got all of that, that access to us and they are pushing for these divisive strategies in order to make us a weak country and they're doing a great job a great job so every single time something like this happens and someone's going off about some conspiracy theory i'm like stop letting the russians win stop letting the chinese win and then they look at me like i'm crazy and i'm like who do you think that's coming from do you really think it's it's some you know brilliant scientists who are being muted by our government you know is that what's happening said so, or perhaps it's a bunch of robots controlled by one or two different people who are spreading this information because it knows it's going to piss you off and you're going to end up spreading it and then you're going to end up believing it and then all of a sudden they're creating a very divisive anti-government you know culture in in the United States like that's a beautiful way to beat a country it's from within everyone knows that everyone talks about it but then they turn around and they do the exact same thing that you know our nefarious counterparts are trying to get us to do. So it's, again, it's, it's very complicated. It's, it's very hard to, to combat. Um, and so I, I really just encourage when anyone hears something, do your own research, right? Look it up. Uh, Snopes does a fantastic job on most of these keeping up with them. They will say the latest rumor is this, you know, or, or fact check. You know, do all of these things that you need to do before you start just blabbing your mouth and passing on this conspiracy theory, because we've got, you know, America is an amazing country and we are an amazing superpower, but we can fall and we have a lot of people who are not on our side. And unless you recognize that, then, you know, I I don't know what's going to happen to us. Well, that's a mic drop moment there, but I can't drop the mic because I've got some closing questions for you. <laughs> but thank you. I mean, this is, this is it. This is why I enjoy this. I am an English farm boy that became an American firefighter started a podcast. I am an expert in zero. So it's important for us to hear these perspectives. And you were actually deployed in these regions of the world. you know. And, and I see this. If anyone wants to test this theory, go on Instagram, put up a post and do hashtag Ukraine, hashtag Russia. And watch the comments and it will immediately like just all these hateful things. So it's, it's, it's right there in front of us. And the other truth is then turn off your damn device, walk outside your front door, look around, see if there's any missiles, see if there's any race riots. 
And then just go into your community because that's what you can affect and start mentoring and make your own doorstep better. If we all did that, that would bring us all back together again. I absolutely agree, especially staying with your local community. Um, you know, we, we got to start somewhere and blabbing off on, on social media, you know, social media is, it's good in many ways, but it is heavily toxic and it is something that we need to really take a hard look at. Um, it it is great to reach people. It's great to know that you're not alone. Uh, but the negative side, you know, we all need to do better. Absolutely. Well, you mentioned the, the first of my closing questions about a book. You mentioned The Wires of War. Are there any other books that you love to recommend? It can be related to our discussion today or completely unrelated. Ooh, um, I, I will always throw out uh, one of my favorite books, uh, Gates of Fire by Stephen Pressfield. If you just want to feel motivated. And um, that's just, I read that in, I think, 48 hours. Um, I didn't do a whole lot in those two days <laughs> besides reading. Uh, Beirut Rules. Uh, that is a, a very good one. Um, got that on an audio book uh, during a drive cross country. And it's just absolutely fascinating. Um, highly recommend it. Uh, for someone like me, I, I was born in the 80s, and so I, I miss the 1970s um, Reagan era of um, issues with Lebanon. Uh, so kind of understanding that a little bit better uh, and then how that has led to our current relationship uh, in the Middle East and our current relationship in with Iran, uh, that backstory is, is invaluable uh, for all of those who are really interested in that beautiful well thank you i haven't had any well i had gates of fire mentioned but the other two definitely not what about a movie and or a documentary I, you know i for for complete entertainment uh, i love a good old casino royale um and then the red violin for something that is uh very well made uh, and absolutely beautiful um, also very sad, uh, but it, th that's a good one. Um, documentary. I, I might have to pass on, on that question. Um, cause I keep thinking about, uh, the docuseries that we need to do and it's clouding my judgment. Um, but for your listeners, what we need to do a docuseries on is women warriors of the world. Uh, and we need to highlight all the women around the world who are uh, doing incredible, extraordinary things, uh, especially in male-oriented uh, occupations. Um, I remember I had this conversation when Shannon Kent died. Uh, people were flabbergasted that she was in Syria to begin with. Um, and I was like, you do realize that women deploy and women go to these places. Uh, and a lot of the reaction was we, we didn't. So not just the U.S., you know, but you've got, uh, you know, the Jaeger troop in Norway, you've got the YPJ in Syria, um, you've got the Charlie Company in Hong Kong, which is anti-riot police, um, you've got these amazing firefighters in Australia, um, you've got all of these uh, women-led anti-poaching teams in, in Sub-Saharan Africa, um, you know, so you, 
you've got these amazing women who are focused on anti uh, women in child trafficking in, in South America. So you have these, these women doing extraordinary things and, and we really need to, um, to discuss that and see that and, and understand that uh, while we might be all over the world, uh, we're actually quite related and go through the same cultural issues and the same uh, problems defeating social norms. Well, hopefully someone listening will uh, will grab that and run with it. We shall see. I think it's a great idea. I mean, I was just thinking when you were talking about women, I mentioned Bodicea earlier. You have uh, Joan of Arc. I mean, there's some incredible female warriors that, that are all throughout our past, you know, the Amazonian warriors. So it's kind of funny that in 2023, we're, <laughs> we're still in this crazy market. But like you said, I think, again, the way that you painted the division through outside forces, I think when it comes to racism and, and you know, um, prejudice when it comes to gender, and sexual orientation, most people are in the middle of like, no issue with it. I think it's these extreme voices that we keep hearing that are the ones that are dividing and the middle of us have to go, enough is enough. You know, you guys have been the squeaky wheels for so long. This is the norm. We're a community. We're all doing the same thing. We all, you know, I mean, all over the world, I want to see my, my kids fed, clothed, sheltered, and grow up healthy. I mean, that's it. It's a universal experience. Absolutely. All right. Well, then the next question, is there a person that you recommend to come on this podcast as a guest to speak to the first responders, military and associated professions of the world? Oh, um, well, I, I saw that you already interviewed Kate Pate um, and Meg Tucker, obviously. Um, you know, so we run a, a nonprofit for combat wounded um, it enables them to, it's basically adaptive extreme sports is what we do. So, uh, through mechanical modifications or even human assistance, we, uh, allow these veterans to, to race, uh, desert races or to go to shooting competitions. Uh, so they'll, we have hand controls in our vehicles. So the ones that are, you know, amputees can still drive. Uh, and then we've got a, a really, um, great guy who can modify weapons uh, depending on you know whatever uh, combat issue that you have um, I'm constantly inspired by by all of those um, those people uh, we have a few um, you know that I, I would be interested in hearing their their side um, one teaches wheelchair self-defense um, which I think is pretty badass. Um, his name is Paul Gardner. So if you haven't heard of him, uh, he's, he was paralyzed after he got shot um, overseas. Uh, and he's, his humor is remarkably dry and amazing and dark. And, um, but he's, he's probably the best shot I've ever seen. Um, so just a super impressive guy. Um, and uh, Clint Trial, I don't know if you've had Clint Trial on. Um, Clint Trial lost his, his, both of his legs in Afghanistan. Uh, he's been an integral part of, of what we do. Um, huge motivator. And if you wanna talk politics, he will gladly talk politics with you. So 
just forewarned. Um, uh, as for women uh, and the women who inspire me, I don't think any of them can come on your podcast just yet. We, there's no rush. Um, when, they, when they're ready, when the, when the handcuffs <laughs> come off, then uh, the door is always open. Uh, yes. And, and I, I, I do love the fact that these women, um, you know, they're, they're doing all of these things uh, without the recognition and without jumping on social, mo- social media and, and shouting to the world, everything that they're doing. Um, you know, the, they are truly the quiet professionals. Uh, so, uh, but all of the women that I know uh, inspire me daily. Uh, so uh, Lisa Bouchard, uh, she owns Jim Jones uh, out in Salt Lake. Um, she is just a wealth of knowledge in terms of fitness and motivation. Um, you know, she she keeps her circle small uh, so that people can truly get functional fitness and not injure fitness, right? So, um, but yeah, I, I would I definitely recommend those. Beautiful. Well, if you're able to help me connect with any of those, I'd be happy to to bring them on. That would be amazing. Absolutely. Thank you so much. All right. Well, then the very last question before we make sure everyone knows where to find Kadri, what do you do to decompress? Uh, two things. Exercise is my main one. Um, exercise is my mindfulness. Um, it's the only thing that truly gets me focused on breath and uh, my body uh, more so than anything else. Um, two, when I'm having uh, a lot of self doubt, I actually watch Frozen Two. Oh, I, really? I sit there and I I watch Frozen Two, and it always gets me out of my funk. Um, I don't know if it's because it's distracting my subconscious mind from from running around like crazy. Um, or the storyline itself, or that it is something that's very familiar and comfortable to me. Um, but it, I find that sometimes watching realistic shows and movies make things worse. Um, I don't want to watch another war movie. I don't want to watch, you know, whatever. I want to be able to completely decompress and get myself um, out of my own reality and out of my head. And there's nothing better than a singing animated movie to do that. Why Frozen 2 and not the first one? Um, so Frozen 2, the storyline. Uh, so Elsa is exactly where she thought that she needed to be. Um, and yet she felt like she was meant for something more, right? So she's the queen of an entire kingdom. And people expect her to be happy, right? That is the highest thing that she could possibly be. And yet she wasn't fulfilled and she knew that she needed to do something else. And I think a lot of times uh, for my world, you know, being the, the CEO, the owner and the founder of Kadri, um, it's hard. And as anyone knows uh, who's an entrepreneur, things get dark. Uh, you make the wrong decisions and you beat yourself up. And I live in paradise. You know, I, I live on a ranch. Um, it is my little piece of heaven. Um, it is absolutely gorgeous and it's everything I could possibly imagine. 
And yet I am pushing myself into this dark and sometimes miserable life profession because I believe that if I don't do it, no one else will. And these women deserve the absolute best and no one is paying attention to that and no one is providing that for them. And I couldn't, when I was in, I couldn't be that squeaky wheel, but now I can, now I have a voice. Now I have a purpose and I am leaving my, my little piece of paradise uh, to fight and battle and, you know, push and push back and deal with the sexism and deal with the ignorance of men and women and all of these issues. And it is a, a struggle. And so watching Frozen 2, coming back to that, um, it not only allows me to get myself out of my own head, but it's a nice reminder that she had everything that she wanted, yet she knew that there was something else for her. And for me, I have everything I could possibly imagine here. Minus a donkey. I really want a donkey, but that's another conversation. <laughs> well, you got to watch Shrek um, as well then. <laughs> uh, but yeah, it, it definitely inspires me to, uh, to keep pushing. Do you have children? And there's a reason I ask this. It's not me trying to pry. No, I do not have children. Okay. So Joe DeSena, the founder of Spartan, made a comment. We just did an interview um, a few days ago. And he said that owning, being an entrepreneur, running your own business is more painful than childbirth. And the reason he's making the statement as a man is that a lot of people have reported that. But the trauma that comes with this business that you're in, that I mean, technically that I'm in, he kind of put that parallel to even worse than what we think of as the worst thing when it comes to the impact on that person. You served as a Marine. You, you touched on the fact that you spent time in SOCOM. And yet here you are in this paradise and you're talking about the darkness. Of course, there's a, an incredibly positive side to the entrepreneurial shit, but have you found you know that? Does that analogy resonate with you? Has this been one of the hardest things you've had to do even though you wore a uniform for all those years? Absolutely. Um, and, and a lot of that comes to, you know, you're, you're leaving the esprit de corps of the Marine Corps. You know, you're leaving this, uh, you're never alone. Uh, even when I was the company commander as a woman and was very much alone, right? I'm not going to hang out with my fellow company commanders who are men. And I'm not going to hang out with my, you know, senior enlisted who were mainly men. Uh, you know, we had obviously rules, uh, and it was very lonely, but I was never alone. And I always had, you know, mentors and commanders and bosses and people who I could say, Hey, this is what I'm thinking when I had no idea what I was doing. You know, I was like, Oh, this is the way, um, I had them to run and bounce ideas off of. I had them to counsel me when I screwed up, uh, and say, what, what should you have done? And have you thought of this? Um, as an entrepreneur, like it's just me. And I, I do have mentors and mainly the mentors there to tell me it's okay. And sometimes that's enough. Like it's, it's AA for entrepreneurship, right? Like it's okay that you screwed up. It's okay. Um, you know, so I, I do have very good mentors in, in that sense, but 
this company is going to succeed or fail based on my decisions. And when I am just constantly going up against the storm of messing with the status quo, that a huge military industrial complex is not what me to do, where leaders and generals, you know, don't want me to mess with it. And yet I have to maintain respect towards them, right? Because they're still my customer and they're still the ones that I have to you know, sell this stuff to uh, and convince that their women should have it. When I'm fighting up against that, it's, it's overwhelming and you feel just absolutely alone. Now, sometimes I'm like, bring it on. Sometimes I'm like, I got this, you know, I've got my own little playlist, you know, my motivated playlist that I go into before meetings. And, you know, I um, conjure up this amazing attitude of uh, absolute incredible self-confidence. But there are times when it just like, I'm doing the wrong thing. I chose poorly. Uh, I messed up. Uh, what am I doing? Does anyone actually care? Am I doing the right thing? Am I making a difference? Why am I going through all of this when I live in heaven? Right? So it is tough um, and it is painful. Um, I had appendicitis and uh, kidney stones at the exact same time. And while I never, you know, horrible in third world country, by the way. Um, So I don't know childbirth. I don't know that pain. I do know the other two incredible, painful things that your body can go through. Um, I think the acute pain is something that anyone can withstand for a certain amount of time. Uh, Actually, 26 hours was my time. After 26 hours, I was like, I will do anything if you stop the pain, right? So I knew 26 hours is my limit. Um, but this field that we're choosing, this, um, job that we're choosing, it, it's a, it's a marathon of pain, of slow burning, aching pain. And that chronic pain at times, you know, and anyone who suffered from chronic pain, I suffer from chronic pain. Some days you're like, I got this. And other days you're like, I don't know how much more I can take. And I think recognizing that, especially for these young people who are like, I think it's a great idea to start a business. And I'm like, are you sure? Are you sure? <laughs> um, you know, you, you have to have strategies to, to combat that chronic pain, uh, to push through, to know tomorrow will be better. Um, I also absolutely believe that sleep solves 90% of our problems and gives us a different perspective on the 10% that it didn't solve. Uh, So I am all for sleeping. You know what? It is eight o'clock. I had a shit day. I'm going to take my melatonin and I'm going to go to bed and, you know, we'll face all of this tomorrow. Um, But without those strategies and without, you know, without the people that push me to keep going and those are my customers, uh, I don't know if I would have continued doing what I'm doing. 
Well, thank you for sharing that because I think that's an important perspective. And when you listed those things, that's the same imposter syndrome that lives rent-free in my head as well. Like, is this worth it? But until we stop burying firefighters and police officers and you know members of the military as well as everyone else, then yes, it is. You know, because I could, you know, stop this and just do some quote-unquote regular job and just not think about that anymore. But I can't sleep at night if I do. You know, so I totally understand what you're saying and. That's the thing. One day you'll stand on the other side and go, you know, fold your arms and go, I did it. And then maybe you'll, you know, burn your Frozen 2 DVD and find something else. But uh, yeah, I totally understand it. Well, so for people listening, you have the Valkyrie pants, you have a rash guard, you have a shirt, you're working on a, on a suit. Where can people find all the products? So CadreClothing.com uh, offers what we have commercially available. We have about six other designs that are specifically available to our military uh, and government officials. Uh, those are by contract only, uh, and those are not available for, for commercial sale. Uh, so if there are any women out there who are interested in getting their unit some, uh, some products, uh, not only do we have those available, but uh, we can also make you whatever you need. Uh, and that is one thing that I, I learned about this industry. Like it seems so complicated when I was in, um, but we can literally make you anything that you need. Uh, so uh, email contact form is, is on the website. Uh, if you're on social media, I'm at Kadri underscore clothing. I'm also on Facebook somewhere. Um, not on there often. So I apologize if I don't get back to you uh, within a few weeks. Um, and yeah. Now, when you say the, the government side, does that include police and fire? It does. And, and we're working on a way, um, right now to, you know, I, I hope within the next year or two, we can figure out a way to do a pro deal for, uh, military or for the law enforcement firefighters, because we do recognize that you all have to buy your own stuff. Um, and it's, it's not, you know, based on government credit card, um, so, yes, uh, we have a 10% uh, discount for all of our veterans, active duty, first responders. Uh, contact us to, to verify your identity. Um, and, you know, we can try to relieve some of that, um, you know, U.S. made pain uh, of price. Beautiful. Well, Catherine, I want to just say thank you so much. We've gone all over the place. This is why I love these organic conversations. You know, we did hit, you know, the, the bulk of what we were going to talk about, which was obviously the challenge for the female responder and Marine and soldier, and then the, some of the solutions that you're bringing. But even your perspective on Asia and some of the other things that we've discussed have been, you know, imperative. So I want to thank you so much for being so generous with your time today. Thank you for having me. This was, uh, this is really laid back and fun. And um, yeah, it's, it's a very rare treat uh, to have just a, a very organic conversation. So I appreciate it. Mm -hmm.